This is the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're very pleased to have with us today Attorney Karen Carabinos from the law firm of Drew, Eckel, and Farnham with offices in Atlanta and Brunswick, Georgia. Karen has been litigating cases for more than 25 years, with the last 16 focused on the complexities of property insurance law. She has successfully handled more than 75 trials and hearings and annually conducts 50 depositions and examinations under oath. She also represents insurance companies in first-party coverage litigation, extra-contractual claims, and property subrogation cases. And Karen, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Today, Karen will be speaking on the application of judicial estoppel and insurance claims. And Karen, for our first question today, can you briefly discuss what judicial estoppel means? Certainly. The doctrine of judicial estoppel was the result of court searching for a way to deal with the situation where a party to a legal proceeding assumes a certain position and succeeds in maintaining that position in that court case and then later seeks to take a contrary position in another legal proceeding simply because that party's interests have changed. And this is a principle that the United States Supreme Court first recognized all the way back in 1895. And over the years, the Supreme Court has refined and further defined the doctrine. And uh, basically what we're using now is a factors that were uh, set forth by the Supreme Court in 2001 to help courts and uh, opposing uh, parties to determine whether or not the doctrine of judicial estoppel should apply to prevent a party from taking inconsistent positions to gain an advantage in legal proceedings. And so just to give you an idea of what a a court is going to look at, they're going to look at three different factors. The first, they will look and consider whether a party's later position in a lawsuit is clearly inconsistent with the party's earlier position in in a previous lawsuit. Second, the courts will inquire whether the party has succeeded in persuading a court to accept that party's earlier position so that judicial acceptance of that inconsistent position in a later lawsuit would create the perception that either the first or the second court was misled. And then the final factor that the court looks at is whether the party seeking to now assert an inconsistent position would derive some type of unfair advantage or impose an unfair detriment on the opposing party if they were not stopped. Now, it looks like that a majority of the courts across the nation follow these factors in determining whether to apply the doctrine, but the doctrine is not favored in every jurisdiction. For example, as a general rule in the state of Tennessee, they do not favor the application of the judicial estoppel doctrine, but they will apply it only when a statement of fact is willfully false. That is where the party knowingly and deliberately commits perjury. So as a result in Tennessee, a statement that falls short of one being a willfully false statement is insufficient to invoke the doctrine of judicial estoppel. In North Carolina, the courts hold that judicial estoppel is an equitable gap-filling doctrine that um, pr- provides the courts with a, a means to prevent individuals who would pay 
play fast and loose with the judicial system. Uh, the courts in Alabama, Florida, and South Carolina, where we all uh, practice here in, in the Southeast, also apply judicial estoppel to prevent a party from adopting a position in con conflict with one previously taken. Um, and they, the courts are applying the doctrine not only to protect litigants from allegedly improper or deceitful conduct by opposing parties, but also to protect the integrity of the judicial process and the courts. And Karen, can you tell us how judicial estoppel impacts an insurance claim? The doctrine of judicial estoppel is frequently raised in a lawsuit involving an insurance claim when an insured has successfully persuaded a bankruptcy court to discharge his or her debts, and that discharge is based on inaccurate and sometimes even for a fraudulent picture of the insured's financial affairs. But then in the insurance claim, the debtor or the insured is seeking to recover monetary damages for property that he or she either failed to disclose to the bankruptcy court or undervalued debt. So what we do is we look at um, two different types of bankruptcy cases that may be involved with an insurance claim. And the first is a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and that is the vehicle in which a debtor seeks a full and complete discharge of their outstanding debts. And as you would might imagine, that when you're filing a bankruptcy case, uh, you have to disclose all of your assets and liabilities. And the bankruptcy code specifically requires that debtors file a list of their creditors. And unless the bankruptcy court orders otherwise, the debtors must also file a schedule of their assets and liabilities, um, a schedule of current income and current expenditures, and even a statement of their financial affairs. And so what we see in the insurance world is these types of, in these types of bankruptcies is a debtor who fails to schedule assets or misrepresents the value of the assets, but then in a subsequent lawsuit against an insurance company, they seek to recover for damages or loss of that property that they either failed to disclose or undervalued. Now, there's another type of bankruptcy that we see judicial estoppel that can be used um, with regard to an insurance claim, and that is a bankruptcy filed under Chapter 13. And that is the vehicle in which a debtor seeks to reorganize his debts. He's not, he's not seeking a complete discharge where he's not going to have to pay, but he's reorganizing his debts. And the bankruptcy courts hold just like a Chapter 7 debtor, that a person who files a Chapter 13 petition for bankruptcy has a duty to disclose um, in their assets and any changes in the assets. And this is a continuing um, duty that an, an insured or a debtor has in the bankruptcy court. For example, in a case before the 11th Circuit in 2010, a debtor failed to identify a pending lawsuit in which she sought monetary compensation. And the 11th Circuit held that that pending lawsuit was an asset that qualified as property of the bankruptcy estate and should have been disclosed via an amendment to the petition in bankruptcy. And the court went further on to hold that the debtor's failure to timely amend her Chapter 13 reorganizational plan to reflect that pending lawsuit uh, constituted an inconsistent position under oath, and thus the 11th Circuit upheld the application of the doctrine of judicial estoppel. 
So in a lawsuit between a insured and the insurance company, a court can apply its equitable discretion to judicially stop an insured from inserting an insurable interest in property when the insured did not disclose that interest in that property before a bankruptcy court, which then prompted the bankruptcy court to discharge the insured's debts because there was no um, assets to pay any of the creditors. And so the rationale is that the insured's failure to reveal assets operates as a denial that such assets actually exist and therefore deprives the bankruptcy court of the full information it needs to evaluate and rule upon a bankruptcy petition and again deprives the creditors of resources that may satisfy unpaid obligations. And these misrepresentations or failures to, failure to disclose assets in an insured's prior bankruptcy and then using those same assets to seek insurance coverage can also provide a basis for a denial of the insurance claim under a policy exclusion for fraud and concealment. Karen, have you handled any insurance claims in which judicial estoppel is an issue? Yes, I have. I've had several. Um, and the first was back in 2005 here in Georgia. And the case was uh, Leroy Battle versus Liberty Mutual. Um, my partner, Mike Bagley, and I represented Liberty Mutual in a lawsuit brought by its insured, Mr. Battle. And Mr. Battle, for some reason, had two policies of insurance. One was with Liberty Mutual and the other was with Georgia Underwriting Association. And both policies provided coverage for a Columbus, Georgia home. And Mr. Battle's mother had conveyed him that house in 1985. But he also had uh, two other pieces of property in Columbus, Georgia as well. Now, the insurance claim stemmed from a January 31, 2002 fire that damaged that Columbus house that his mother had given him. And an investigator with uh, both the local fire department and with the also with the insurance companies determined that the fire uh, was intentionally set by human act. And so after both insurance companies denied the fire claim, Mr. Battle filed suit. And we, a- we answered the complaint on behalf of Liberty Mutual in which we denied liability and counterclaimed against Mr. Battle for fraud and Georgia Underwriting Association did the same thing. So during the litigation, we found out that seven years before the fire loss, so the fire loss was in 2012, so back in um, 1995, Mr. Battle had filed a Chapter 7 petition for bankruptcy here with the Northern District of Georgia. We reviewed his bankruptcy uh, petition, which showed that the Columbus property, the one that was involved in the fire, was not listed on his schedule of assets although there were two other pieces of real property that were, and both of those other pieces of property were secured by mortgages. And Mr. Battle also listed, um, I think it was more than $118,000 in unsecured debts. So what happened was that the bankruptcy court allowed the mortgage company to foreclose on one piece of uh, property, and then Mr. Battle reaffirmed the mortgage on the other real property, basically saying, I'm going to continue to pay the mortgage on that property. So because of the lack of uh, additional assets, the bankruptcy court reported to the court that there was no other property available for distribution, and the bankruptcy court subsequently released Mr. Battle from all of his debts and closed the estate. 
So after Mr. Battle filed suit, we moved for summary judgment, and we argued that we were that Liberty Mutual was not liable because Mr. Battle was judicially stopped from claiming an ownership interest in the property because he had failed to list that Columbus, Georgia property as an asset in his bankruptcy case. The court of uh, the trial court granted um, the motions for summary judgment on the application of the doctrine of judicial estoppel, and then Mr. Battle appealed to the Georgia Court of Appeal- Appeals. The Court of Appeals uh, noted that Mr. Battle had successfully pled that he did not own the Columbus, Georgia property, and as a result, his debts were discharged. And the court said that that position was clearly inconsistent with his current claim with the insurance companies that he owned that property. So the Court of Appeals held that the discharge of Mr. Battle's debts yielded a substantial and unfair advantage to Mr. Battle, and he was able to shield the house from his creditors and maintain an insurable interest in that Columbus, Georgia property um, and and bring the lawsuit against the insurance companies. So as a result of all this, he was able to put himself in an untenable position through those efforts to manipulate the courts to his advantage. Um, And the Georgia Court of Appeals uh, held for the first time, really, that the purpose of judicial estoppel was not only to protect the integrity of the judicial process, but also uh, to um, uh, prevent a debtor uh, from uh, taking an unfair advantage which resulted in a bankruptcy court on not having assets to pay any unsecured creditors. A lot of people argue that you know they need to, the insurance company needs to show that they were prejudiced because of the inconsistent positions. And the Georgia Court of Appeals, which is also echoed by other jurisdictions that apply the doctrine of judicial estoppel, that the insurance companies do not need to uh, prove that they themselves were prejudiced in order to evoke the judicial estoppel. All right, so Karen, when should an insurance company consider the possible application of judicial estoppel? At the very beginning of a property damage claim, um, because judicial estoppel can provide not only a valid defense if suit is later filed, but also a um, bankruptcy petition um, is contains a, a rich source of information regarding possible fraud or misrepresentation. What evidence should an insurance company look for? Um, like I said, they... The first thing is the actual um, bankruptcy petition, and attached to that bankruptcy petition are property schedules that have to be filled out that list all of the assets, real property and personal property, lawsuits that um, could be an asset to um, that they own that could be used to pay their creditors. And so you look very closely to determine whether the insureds have admitted from the petition that very item that is the basis for the insurance claim, or they're misrepresenting the value of the item at a substantially lower value than they are representing in the insurance claim. And so if the insureds have admitted either the item or misrepresented the item at a lower value, the insured should be prevented from recovering on the basis of the policy exclusion for fraud and concealment, as we talked about. And then if suit is filed, recovery should be precluded on the basis of judicial estoppel. 
And what we're seeing more frequently are insureds who are undervaluing an asset on the bankruptcy petition and while they inflate the value of the item on an insurance claim. So just for an example, there's a Kentucky case in which the insureds had represented in their bankruptcy case that they possessed personal property that was valued at $4,010. After the insured's fire loss, the value of their personal property quadrupled. They represented um, on their contents list that they submitted to the insurance company that they had fire-damaged property valued at $21,384. And all of this was purchased prior to filing the bankruptcy. That case was appealed to the Sixth Circuit, who agreed with the trial court's application of the doctrine of judicial estoppel because of those inconsistent positions regarding the value of the property. And so what happened was that the insurance um, company only had to pay for the fire-damaged personal property the $4,010, which was the amount the insureds represented in their bankruptcy petition. And a similar result was reached in an Alabama District Court case in 2008. And in that case, the insured represented in her bankruptcy schedule that the entire value of her household goods um, that were um, in existence about 30 days before the loss was only $2,300. But then after the fire, she filed a claim for the insurance company saying that she had in excess of $41,818 of property. So some insureds are attempting to avoid the application of judicial estoppel by arguing that, well, I used a different measure of valuation when I valued my property in the bankruptcy petition than what I used to value the um, property in my insurance claim. And a Ohio federal district court case shows that um, that is really not something that they're going to um, use as uh, a possible reason not to apply judicial estoppel. He said that, you know, depending on the differences and the contrast and the valuations, uh, the, um, their explanation that they have used a different value does not begin to explain how that they would have acquired such a vast amount of personal property in a relatively short period of time, especially when the insureds have meager income and have filed for bankruptcy because they don't have enough money to pay for their debts. So it's really important that an insurance company ask how the insureds valued the property that they listed on the bankruptcy petitions as, as well as on the contents list. And it's also important to ask whether the property listed on the contents list were items that were in existence at the time the insured filed for bankruptcy or were purchased after their debts were discharged by the bankruptcy court. Now this would confirm whether the insureds were valuing the exact same property and not adding to the insurance claim personal property that they purchased after filing for bankruptcy. I know that um, some insureds may attempt to avoid the application of judicial estoppel by seeking to amend their bankruptcy petition. And so insurance companies should watch out for amendments that the insureds may make after their claim is denied but before suit is filed. Because under the bankruptcy rules, unscheduled assets, newly discovered assets, um, or concealed assets furnish a basis for reopening a debtor's bankruptcy, even if it's been 
uh, you know, many years. So some courts have held that the doctrine of judicial estoppel may not be applied if the insured or the debtor successfully amends their bankruptcy petition to include the admitted asset. So where such an, uh, a motion to reopen the case has been made by the debtor, the courts have held that there no longer is any inconsist- inconsistent p- uh, position that would support a finding that they had obtained an unfair advantage. But here in Georgia, a federal court has held that while the bankruptcy rules do not prescribe a particular time limit in which they have the power to reopen a case, um, they would still apply judicial estoppel to cases in which the debtor was forced to fess up once exposed by his adversary. So, for example, if an insurance company was able to point out that um, the insured has um, gotten his or her debts discharged based on his failure to identify a particular asset in the bankruptcy case, but then uses that same asset to try to get insurance proceeds, and um, then as a result of the insurance company denying the claim, they'll go back and open reopen the bankruptcy Uh, court case in order to disclose that asset, the federal court here in Georgia says that's not going to be enough. You're still going to be judicially stopped. So then an insurance company can deny a claim based on judicial estoppel. Well, judicial estoppel is just that. It's a judicial remedy. It's not a basis for denying a claim, but it is an affirmative defense for the insurance company that should be raised if the insured files suits following a denial of the claim. As I noted before, the denial of the insurance claim would likely be based on concealment or fraud of the insured actually uh, defrauding the insurance company based on the valuation of uh, the assets uh, as compared to the assets in the bankruptcy court or concealment of uh, an asset that they did not disclose to the bankruptcy court and now are trying to recover monetary damages for the for that asset they still have. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Karen Carabinos from the law firm of Drew Eklund Farnham with offices in Atlanta and Brunswick, Georgia. And special thanks to today's producer, Frank Vowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to iTunes or our webpage, www.ambest.com slash claims resource. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professionals and Claims Resource is the top website for locating qualified professionals and need-to-know insurance information for the claims market. Brought to you by AM Best, the world leader in insurance industry information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.